Sometimes you just need to enjoy a classic. Join us as we go into the archives. Hey, we going back. And put our ear to the history books with this one. This is Into the Archives. Here's your host, Brett Boone. Today on Into the Archives with the Boone Podcast, I sit down with the great George Brett. George is the last, the last player to challenge 400, I think legitimately, hit 390 in, in 1980, uh, played in that World Series. Actually played against the Phillies. My dad won, his, uh, won a World Series, 1980. It was George Brett. I remember it. <laughs> he, he had to miss some games that, that year due to hemorrhoids. I remember that as a, as a young kid. But uh, as time went on, he became one of the greatest left-handed hitters, one of the greatest third basemen to ever do it. I got a chance to sit down with George recently, and uh, this is a really cool podcast. Here's part one with George Brett. George, thanks for coming on the program. No problem, man. Oh, this is Brett. I thought you were my, I thought it was my favorite boom. I, I I knew you were going there. I was going to go there Maddie. out of the Maddie, yeah. little Maddie. How's little Maddie doing? Maddie's doing good. And I told him uh George was coming on. He was excited. I said, "You know, you know, there's there's a long history with uh, the Boons and the Bretts, George played with my dad, played against my dad, played against me. But his favorite is Matthew right. Boone, who was his bat boy in uh, in the late nineties. Right, and uh, oh, remember, I'm sorry, it was the late eighties. Late eighties. The, 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 the one picture that I think your dad had be signed to him when he was managing the Royals was I just hit a home run in Toronto. I think it might have been 92 and 92 or 91. And Matt was just a little kid and he was on the trip with us. And it was, uh, I already had had a single double and a triple that game. And I came up in like the seventh inning and hit a home run. And there's a picture of me and little Matty high-fiving as I crossed home plate. And it was on the cover of the Toronto Sun and it was just the neatest thing because I always had a soft spot in my heart for Matt. You know, all kids, I think I did. You know, all the players, kids and stuff. But it was just so cool to have me and Matty on the cover. And I think your dad had me sign the uh, the original picture for him. So that's Matt why I has, said, how you doing, Matty? No, I know that. Uh, Matty, uh, George, he still has that picture. And if you oh, go to my par- my if you go to my parents' house to this day in the guest bedroom, that picture of you and Matt hangs there. It's it's pretty is cool. Right? And, and Maddie Maddie oh, thinks it's God. cool too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is he still in the turf business? Isn't he doing? He's turf? in the turf bit. Yeah, he's in the turf business, doing well. Boone Action Turf up in uh, Orange County. And he told me to tell you hi. He knew you were coming on the okay. show, and he said, "Yeah, give well, George you make, my best." You make sure you tell Maddie I said hi. I will. All right. Ton of George Brett stories. Chasing 400, you know, Margana, Morgana, Pine Tar. But I want to get to this. Doing my homework, you're responsible, at least partially, for the Mendoza, the famous Mendoza line. Mario Mendoza, the, the thing in baseball, the 200 level. Tell me the story. Tom Pachorek. Bruce Bakhti, I, I think, had a role in that. It was 1979. Well, I remember I used to hang out with Chris Berman a lot and um, just was, uh, you know, during the baseball season, especially all-star games, we would always hang out together, have a few beers, you know, after the ball game, maybe the night before the ball game, have a few beers with them. And 
I, I had mentioned the Mendoza line and he had never heard it before. And I didn't make it up. I heard it from somebody else probably. So Chris to this day gives me credit for the Mendoza line, which is, which is not true. Um, nowadays, there's a lot of Mendoza lines out there, aren't there? There's a lot. A lot of people. There's a lot. A lot of people at the Mendoza line. We, La- we lack of a two-strike approach. We had three under it in the starting lineup about three weeks ago. Jorge Soler, Cam Gallagher, and, and uh, Hunter Dozier. Three guys under the Mendoza line in the major leagues. You don't see that very often. No, it's it, it's a lack of a two strike approach. You know, you're seeing it around exactly. baseball quite a quite a bit these days, and it's uh, I don't know. It's going to be rectified back, especially when you played. You know, my generation overlapped, but man, you know, I had some tough years. I flip over my bubblegum guard time to time. I had some big years, but I had some years where man, I was struggling. <laughs> where things just and, didn't go quite as planned, uh, right? Uh, Right, I'll tell you, and, and two thirty three, you never hit two thirty three. No. I did, I no. did one year, I did one year, and I'm telling you, George, I, I had some nights. There were some deep soul searching where I, I mean, I literally had tears in my eyes. Like, what happened to me? I forgot right. how to hit. But you talk about below the Mendoza line. I couldn't imagine hitting. I, I, I said this once, you know, my son is, is, is in his first year of A-ball. And there were a bunch of kids hitting in the Oh, box. I didn't I said, know that. Yeah, I said, Jakey, you know this. I said, it's harder to hit one something in the big leagues than it is to hit 300. Do you know how bad you have to be to hit 100 and something? Over, I've never tried I mean, to put like this. Huh? Well, my last year, you're talking about having a bad year. My last year at age 40, I mean, I thought, I actually thought I was the worst player in baseball. I mean, I ended up hitting 268, I think. Yep. I led the team in home runs with 19 and led the team. This is how bad our team was. It led the team in RBIs with 75, and I thought I was the worst player in baseball, and that's why I retired. And you see guys now – well, I remember telling that story to John Buck when he was catching for the Royals, Mark Tien and those guys in the spring before a spring training game one time. And they said, so, George, what was your, uh, what was your worst year? And I said, I tell you, my last year I was so bad. I was the worst player in baseball. And I told them those stats, and they all said – Shit, I take that every day, every year. And I said, that's the difference between you and I. <laughs> yeah. Oh, George, right now yeah. you'd be making 14, 14 15 million with those numbers. Oh, with those numbers, it'd be unbelievable. It'd be unbelievable. Yeah. But you know what? I'm not playing now, and baseball was good to me for the 20 years I played in the major leagues, and I'm very happy with what I accomplished. And Although it's getting tougher and tougher to go to games and watching all these strikeouts. It's just... It's just really frustrating for me to see such to see so few people with a good two strike approach. It's it's mind boggling. You know, George, it's uh, another guy, and in, in your career's overlapped. Uh, we had on the program recently, Albert Bell, one of one of the best. Oh my God! One of the best run producers was. I ever played against. Right, right. And, and it was a great conversation, and I was blown away by how 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 he explained hitting and how you hit and the the right approach and he had the same you know he had the same 
uh, attitude as you do towards watching the game today. And he said, Brett, I had years, I hit 50 homers, I had 50 doubles, I drove in 156. He said, but when there's a runner on second base and there's no outs, my job is to get him to third base so the guy hitting behind me can hit a sack fly and guess what? It's one nothing. We're winning. He said, that's exactly. how you play this game. And I said, Albert, that's awesome to hear because players that that did what you did on a yearly basis. I mean, I, he, he drove in 100, I think 110 or more, 10 years in a row. Well, that, and I and, said, and, and that's the deal. He, he, he wasn't trying to get them over. He was right. trying to get them in. But if he didn't get them in, he made sure he got them over. over. You know what right. I mean? He's just not going to – he's just not going to – Okay, I'm just going to inside out this ball and get jammed and hit a little ball to the shortstop. He might have moved off the plate a couple inches, and now the ball inside. I'm going to drive it to right field. You know, he right, was. Right. You know what? You got to um, send me a text to your podcast. I'd love to listen to that whole show about hitting because I'd love to to listen to old timers talk about hitting. Because my job with the Royals, I go to spring training with the Royals and suit up every game and sit in the dugout, and I'm a spring training coach. And I think the guys that I talk to every year, they're tired of my bull. I want to give them some new stuff. And maybe it's just worded differently or said differently. So, you know, to be a, a good teacher, you got to keep learning. You know what I mean? Without so I would love to. I would love to listen to that podcast from Albert Bell. He was... He was uh, Miguel Cabrera for a long time. He was. You know, Miggy's and, and, like and the, that. Miggy, Miggy Cabrera is like that, too. I mean, he's just a – he's a scientist. He's, a, he's an artist up there with a paintbrush. He's just not throwing stuff up there. But you watch uh, Miguel Cabrera hit. You know, in, in 2012, I was a hitting coach for two months for the Royals. That's the year he won the uh, Triple Crown. And we must have played Detroit ten times in the two months I was there. I mean, it was fun watching this guy hit. It really was. I loved it. Just loved watching him go out there and maneuver the ball around and, you know, take inside pitches and drive them to right field. And it just, it was, it was, it was beautiful. It really was. Yeah, he's, he's And that definitely, was Albert Bell. Yeah, Albert. It, it, the, and the reason I had him on, I said, Albert, not too many people know you. I want, I want the, public to hear and and remind them how great you were because his his career ended abruptly with that hip injury so he kind of went from you know that that force in cleveland to where did albert bell go and and it was really interesting the conversation and the intellect that he has and and how smart he is you know there's there's talking hitting and then there's really talking hitting at a high level at a different level and, and he's one of those guys and it was right. really interesting yeah i'll send you that well brett uh, yeah brett what's uh, what's albert bell do now he's chilling in arizona and and he, he and he said to me you know and i've since then it we become buddies <laughs> and he sent me te- he sends me texts all the time commenting on today's game and and he watches because i can tell uh-huh. i got the feeling that he wants to get back into the game but he's very frustrated with the current yeah. game and but but you could tell you know there's those guys that they really quite didn't want to admit that i want to get back in the game i missed the game i got a lot to give to the game without saying it he said that so i i think right, he's just right. chomping at the bit and and maybe looking for an opportunity i don't know i don't want to put words in his mouth well, he that's didn't, the, he didn't that's the feeling have a i got great reputation you know right 
he didn't. I, I don't know if it was a bad boy image or a rebellious type image or, or whatever it was, but his image was never very good. I know opposing players hated him. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what it was, but it was, uh, it was, um, you know, he just didn't have that good reputation, you know, of uh, Don Mattingly, Donnie Ballgame, or, you know, whatever. He was the opposite. Right. And I, 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 and I think for him to get back in the game, it's, it's going to be tough, even if he wanted to, because of the image he, he portrayed as a player. Yeah, but you, you listen to this And where that came show. from, I don't know. Yeah, you listen to the show, though. He, he really shows himself in a really, really good light. And, you know, a lot of us, we have that, uh, we have that certain reputation. We grow, you know, we, we mature a little bit. We get a little older. Uh, we, we can laugh at a younger version of ourselves. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think we all we yeah. all do. I laughed at myself when I was 30, what I was like when I was 20. And now I'm, you know, my 50s. I, I laugh when I was in my 30s. Like, I thought I knew it all. I'm still learning today. So, yeah, yep. very interesting. Yep. Interesting. All right. So, George mm-hmm. Brett, you're born in Glendale, West Virginia. Uh, early right. in, in your childhood, though, you moved to El Segundo, had three brothers, uh, grew up baseball life. I want to hear what it was like. George, uh, young George Brett, tell me, tell me about your childhood a little bit. Um, I love football. I love basketball. I love baseball. I grew up a mile from the ocean, uh, 42nd Street, Manhattan Beach. I would go to the beach every day of the summer, 9 o'clock. Um, my parents would go to work at 8 uh, we would do the chores, me and my three older brothers. Then we'd hitchhike to the beach. And uh, we'd have to be home by 4 o'clock or 4.30 because my parents got home about 5.15. And the house had to be clean. And, you know, then, uh, you know, that was the summer. Uh, but, you know, my first love, I think, was football. I love football. Um, played quarterback uh, throughout high school. Um, defensive back. Basketball, I was the worst basketball player on the C and B basketball team at El Segundo. Quit that my junior year and concentrated on football and baseball. And, you know, just growing up with three older brothers, they were all great athletes in their own ways. Um, And my dad always compared me to all three of them. Oh, you don't uh, shoot baskets as good as your brother Bobby or Ken. And, oh, God, Ken's such a faster player than you. He's a better football player than you. Uh, your brother John's a better fielder than you, and Kemmer's a better hitter than you, and Bobby's a better hitter than you. And, you know, it was just kind of trying to follow in the footsteps, which was hard, really hard. But uh, I just kept plugging away and got better and better and better. And next thing you know, in 1971, with no college baseball scholarships, no college basketball or, uh, football scholarships, Academically, no scholars, uh, scholarships anywhere. Um, I get drafted in the second round by the Royals. <laughs> kind of shocked me. <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. I went on to play pro ball and ended up playing 20 years. And I've lived in Kansas City now. The crazy thing is I got here when I was 20 and I'm 68. So I've lived in Kansas City for 48 years. And that, that just blows my mind. All right. It's all making sense now. You talk about your childhood with the three older brothers. Now I know th- there's your fondness for Matthew Boone. He was the yeah. young one coming up. You're not as good as Aaron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not as good as Brett. My grandpa was better than you, better than you right now. <laughs> your grandpa yeah, that's played right. too, didn't that's, he? Yeah, Gramps, it was yeah, Gramps played for but a long it was, time. Uh, it was good having three older brothers. Uh, 
Um, I played with my brother Bobby one year in American Legion ball. We never played on. He was a senior. I was a freshman. So I didn't play with him. Um, in fact, I didn't even play baseball my freshman year. I broke my wrist uh, about a week before the season started and was a- unable to play. But that summer I played American Legion. I was maybe, I think American Legion ball, 16 to 18. And I was 15 at the time. And I was a starting shortstop on the American Legion team. And my brother Bobby was the second baseman. And I remember one time they hit a ground ball to me at shortstop and it was a double play situation. I kind of gave him a bad feed and a guy slid into him and uh, he ended up uh, having made some major knee surgery because of my bad throw. <laughs> I think he still holds that over me. I could have been a major league player if I didn't have a bum knee, but he went on to play at Cal Poly Pomona under John Scalinas and then played two years or one year in the Royals minor league. system. They wanted to send him back to Billings, Montana. And he said, no, I'm not going backwards. The only way I'm going to continue playing pro ball is to advance every year. And they said, well, you're not going to advance. He said, okay, give me my release. And he released him. Now he's a very successful business guy. So he made the right decision. Ken, we all know about him. First round pick of the Red Sox in 1966. Played 12 years in the major leagues and I think to this day, he's still the youngest pitcher ever to pitch in a World Series game because he signed in 66 out of high school. And here's a guy with all the college scholarships, football, baseball, academic, everything. And um, he was the fourth pick in the draft. Reggie Jackson was the number two pick in the draft, and my brother was number four. So he drafted out of high school in 66, and in 67, he's pitching in the World Series for the Boston Red Sox. To this day, the youngest pitcher ever to pitch in a World Series game. So those are the shoes I had to follow. And now I know why I wasn't as good as my brothers, but I think I surpassed them in the long run. You mentioned, and and it's really intriguing to me, 71, you were drafted, uh, your second-round pick by the Kansas City Royal. I think it was pick number 29 that year. And you mentioned you didn't have any – Do you know who number 30 was? Who? Mike Schmidt. And and you guys and we'll get to that a little bit later. You've been linked yeah. for a long time, you know, two of the greats yeah. all time at, at that third base position. It's intriguing to me. Okay, how does George, a young George Brett, twenty ninth in the nation, how does he not have college scholarships? I don't know. I remember uh, USC was interested. Rod Dato told me I would have had to go to uh, junior college, El Camino Junior College, for two years. Bobby Winkles was the coach at Arizona State. He had no interest whatsoever, and um, I think the University of Santa Barbara had interest also, but no college scholarship offers whatsoever. And um, I was I wasn't that big. I mean, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I was four eleven, ninety nine pounds. I graduated at five ten, one seventy. So I was still growing, and now I'm like well, I played at six foot two two ten or two oh five. So I was still growing, and, and I wasn't strong. I never lifted weights. I was just this wiry little kid. But I think being around the stadium, being around the ballpark all those years, watching my brothers play Little League, Babe Ruth, high school, you know, and all that stuff, I just had good instincts. You know, I, 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 knew, I knew how the game was played. Was I the best player on the field? I wasn't even the best player on my high school team. We had a guy the year I got drafted in the – 
second round, we had a pitcher on our team uh, who was the best player. He was a year younger than me, and he was the first pick of the Yankees the following the following year, Scott McGregor. You remember, Scotty? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so he was the best player on the team, and I think scouts came out, came out to watch him, and all of a sudden I started growing on the radar screen because I just had good baseball instincts. And, the, and uh, college, you know, they don't have scouts like Major League Baseball does, but um, just one of those things. If you're not the best player in your team, you're not going to get a college scholarship. So the Royals saw something in me then trusted me, and sure enough, it was a great marriage. I signed with them in 1971, and I'm still employed by them. So 50 years now, I've been employed by the Kansas City Royals, which is something I'm very proud of. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Getting to college, uh, you know, I got drafted late out of high school. I ended up going to USC. Uh, right. Looking back, probably the best thing for me. You know, when I was 18. So I who, was, who was uh, your coach at USC? Uh, Michael Gillespie. I just missed okay. um, Tiger, uh, the, the, uh-huh. a late great, the late great Dato. I missed well, him by one year. Didn't Justin take over? Didn't Justin take over for a year or two? He might have, but that was right before I got there. When I was there, Gillespie, Gillespie was the full-time guy. Rod was around, you know, and I always used to look at Rod. You know, you know how charismatic he was. And yeah, he oh, reminded yeah. me, if if there's one Tommy Lasorda in the big leagues. No, he was Rod Tommy Lasorda Rod Dato. Tommy Lasorda. He was, Rod Dato was the Tommy Lasorda of college baseball. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Just charismatic. He, you want him at the at the charity event up on the stage entertaining people. He was he was great. Yeah. And and, and but, the crazy thing is, every time I would run into Rod Dato at a USC football game or a Dodger game or an Angel game, he would always call me Tiger. And that's what he yeah. called all his ex-teammates or all his ex-former players. Yeah. I said, Rod, I wasn't good enough to be a Tiger. You know that. And he just <laughs> giggled. He thought that was the funniest thing that he didn't give me a scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> so I went the college route and, and I come out, you know, at, uh, 21 and, and I kind of, I had three years of college being away from home, being on my own, having a chance to, to grow up a little bit. How was the adjustment for you going from high school to professional baseball? And, and was that, was that a stretch? Was there some growing up to do? You go from playing with boys to men uh, overnight, uh, how was that for you? Uh, it was an experience. I was scared to death, to be honest with you. I remember my parents took me to LAX. My first stop was Billings, Montana. Um, and as back then, you know, at the airport, they could walk you right to the gate. And so I'm shaking my dad's hand. My high school coach is there, John Stevenson, his wife. A couple of my high school buddies are there. Shake everybody's hands. You know, throw out a couple of kisses to Gail Stevenson, my wife's or my uh, high school coach's wife, my mom. And I started walking on the plane, and all of a sudden I started bawling. I'm going, oh, my God, what am I doing? I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready for this. I'm just turned 18 years old. 
And I go sit down, and I'm sitting next to a catcher who signed at a USC, Craig Perkins. So my eyes, I get the tears out of my eyes. And he's really the first person. And there was a guy I played against in high school, Randy Johnson, uh, from Aviation High School. And uh, I think he was on the flight, too. But it was, I mean, I was scared to death. There was, I think, four, four kids from high school and 19 from college on our team. Well, three of the guys that made it to the major leagues were the high school guys, me, Joe Zeb, and Mark Littell. None of the college kids made it. And the college guys, Craig Perkins that year played in the College World Series. He was a catcher. We had guys from Irvine, from Chapman, and from, you know, guys from all over the country that were really good players, but none of them made it to the major leagues. It was just uh, three guys from high school. Isn't that amazing? It is. But it was... It was eye-opening. I mean, it was lonely. I was scared every day. Um, and uh, But you know what? I grew up real quick. It makes you grow up real quick, take responsibility. Uh, never did I get homesick. Never did I really miss my mom and dad. It was just a, a fear of not being good enough and failing for the first time in my life. But uh, that didn't happen. Thank God. So you get through the minor leagues, you get a cup of coffee in the big leagues in 1973. Uh, you're 20 years old. And then the 74 season comes, and uh, you win the starting job. You're the third baseman for the Royals. And, and I think in this transition, and it's been another guy that your, you're, you know, history links you to, is uh, the great Charlie Lau. Right. Well, I came up in go? 73. I got called up in 73. Our third baseman, Paul Shell, sprained his ankle. And uh, I get called up my first game, uh, fly right to Comiskey Park. And um, my uh, I go one for four, no errors. We jump on a plane afterwards, uh, after the game. I go one for four in Minnesota and then sat there on the bench for two weeks. And uh, never played again. Paul Shaw comes off the DL. I go back to Omaha. And um, and at, uh, being a September call-up, I think I got 45 at-bats, and I ended up hitting 125, which is obviously below, way below the Mendoza line. <laughs> and uh, the next year I go to spring training, and there's like three days to go before the final cut, and I'm still on the team. And they had me catching in some, in some games. I was catching real games in spring training. And I think part of the staff wanted me to be the utility infielder, outfielder, catcher, be the third catcher, which I would have been happy with. Right, I really would have. Rather than go back to AAA and make $800 a month or be in the big leagues making $15,000 a year minimum salary, I would have taken the utility role. John Scherholz, our general manager, or our assistant general manager, put up a big stink about it and said, are you kidding me? This guy's got to play every day. He's the future. He's our future third baseman. And uh, so they ended up sending me down. I think I was the last player cut. Two weeks go by. They trade Paul Shaw to the Angels and call me up. Now I'm the everyday third baseman. Well, Charlie Lau had never said a word to me in spring training or anything. You know, back then we didn't have all the cages. We didn't do all the drills. All you did was take batting practice back in those days. We didn't even have a cage to go hit in. 
and he had his hands full with the guys that were going to make the team and play every day. So, you know, I wasn't mad at him or anything. So I, I just went out and I started playing every day. Get over here. So, so at the uh, all-star break, I'm hitting 200. And things aren't pretty. And I, I got a feeling I'm going back to the minor leagues. And then Charlie gets me in Cleveland right before the all-star break in 1974. And says, I think you got a chance to hit, but yeah, I've been watching you. You haven't made one adjustment at all. If you're willing to put forth the effort, I'll help you. But this is going to be a major change. We're just not going to change the oil. We're going to change everything. I said, okay, fine. I got nothing to lose. And he did say something very interesting to me at that little meeting we had in the locker room. He said, I'm the only coach that thinks you can play up here. So that gave me confidence that at least he thought I could play. So sure enough, we had two days off for the All-Star break, and then we had practice. We were flying to Baltimore. And he changed everything about my swing. He moved me way off the plate, got my bat parallel to the ground, closed stance. And the first thing he said, you're not going to hit a ball to the right side of the second baseman. You're going to stay inside everything. You're going to take your top hand off. And our goal at the end of the season is to hit 250. We go into Baltimore, and I think Dave McNally's pitching against us. I'm off the plate, hitting seventh. Sure enough, I get I get like three hits. Line drives to center, line drive to left. The next day, you get a couple more off Jim Palmer or, or whoever. The goal was 250 at the end of the season. I remember about a month and a half later, I was at 250. I'm going, I'll never forget coming back in the dugout. And I said, Charlie, we reached our goal, 250. He says, what are you talking about? I said, you said our goal is to get it to 250. He said, 260. I said, no, you said 250. He said, that's 260. I got it to 290 with four games to go in the season. They fired Charlie Lau. One for 11 ended up hitting 282. But uh, that's why I always say Charlie Lau. You know, I give him all the credit in my success. because I, I, I could have been successful, I think, Brett, in all honesty. I don't think I would have been as successful. But but at the same time, he's the one that put me over the hump as a baseball player. And and what a what a legacy for him. I mean, it put him on the map. I mean, you you well, it put him on the map. But you know what? He he did the same with Hal McRae. He did the same with you know guys that hit two sixty, two seventy in the big leagues. Buck Martinez's and the Freddie Potex and guys like that that would give him the time of day and work on his theories and stuff. You know, they they might have been two twenty hitters that were hitting two sixty, two seventy, two eighty. So I think he really had an influence on not only myself. And then he goes to New York. Remember he went to New York in nineteen eighty. And it was the first time Reggie listened to him. He listened to Reggie. Or Reggie listened to him. He started working with uh, Reggie, and Reggie listened to him. Reggie hits 300 for the first time and still hit the home runs. He still hit 30, 35 home runs and hit over 300. So Reggie gives Charlie a lot of credit. Then he goes to the White Sox, and he's got Greg Luzinski, you know, your dad's pal, and all these guys. Well, Greg became our hitting coach in Kansas City when your dad was managing. All of a sudden, Greg's teaching Charlie Lau. I mean, it's crazy. But this guy was... If there's ever a coach that I think belongs in the Hall of Fame, I think it would be Charlie Lau. I really do. That's that's man, that's all because I've never heard you know, and, and the uh, 
especially coming from a Hall of Famer now, to give that much credit. And, and it kind of changed your life, changed your career. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty awesome. It, it, it really is. It's amazing to well, me. Well, who, was, who I, was your hitting coaches uh, when you were in the big leagues? Uh, you're going to – a very familiar name to you and one of my favorite guys to this day, Hal McRae. He yeah. was my – I mean, Hal was a Charlie uh, guy. It, it, he was great. And and it wasn't so much, you know, it was the, it was the nuances. It was the little things. Like you mentioned, Charlie came to you and, and you said, Charlie, we're at our, we're at our goal. 250. So what are you talking about? 250, 260. Yeah, I think that's then I what, got 260. You know, and he looked at me in 70, then it was 80, then 90. And he says 300. And then they fired him with four games to go. Right. I think Hal had that effect on me more than the physical going and doing the work. Hal was there every day. He was willing to do the work. But it was the things he said in passing, the mental side of the of the hitting right. game. Like you said, moving the barometer. Hey, George, all right, you're at 250. You don't be happy with 250. We're going to 60. 260, my ass. We're going to 270. Those were the things that I found in hitting coaches that really helped me through my career. Right. Uh, and, well, it's like uh, when I was a hitting coach in 2012 or 2013 with the Royals. I told him I'd do it for a month. I did it for two. Mike Moustakas was hitting 188 when I took the job. I would introduce myself to Mike Moustakas every day. Go up and shake his hand. I say, hi, Mike. I'm George Brett. And the first time I did it, he was, I know you are. I said, well, who are you? He said, I'm Mike Moustakas. And I said, don't worry what your numbers are right now. Don't, don't even care what your numbers are. Be the best player Mike Moustakas can be today. That's all I'm asking. You be the best player you can be today, and you, guess what? We're going to win a ball game. And all of a sudden, he quit wondering. He quit worrying about what he was hitting. He was just trying to go out and perform that day. That's all he, that's all he thought about. And I think that really made him mature as a player. Another guy, and you probably know this name for me, was uh, Lee Elia. Oh yeah, oh, and guy. Lee would come great to guy. me, George, it, and you know those times. You're, he, he'd see that look on my face, and I'd be sitting in the dugout. Yeah. And this is the early 2000s in Seattle. The suicidal and, look. The suicidal look. The suicidal look, and I'm I'm in the middle of some <laughs> of my biggest years, and and Lee uh, Lee had, had coached when Dad was in Philly, so I knew Lee, you know, as a little kid. Now he's my hitting right. coach. Uh, you know, he he kind of went with Lou Pinella for a lot of years. Right. And he'd look at me and he'd go, Booney, how you doing? I said, Lee, how the hell you think I'm doing? You've been watching my last two games? <laughs> said, I ain't picking up the spin on the breaking ball. I'm a mess. And you know what he yeah. would say to me? He'd tap me on the shoulder and he'd say, hey, Brett, remember about two weeks ago when we were in Texas and you did that thing with your top hand and you got it rolling? And I looked right. at him and I said, I do remember that. He goes, why don't you try that again? And he'd walk away. And I went from, you know, down in the dumps, like you said, that suicidal feeling to right. I've got it. I've got a chance. And as we know, mm -hmm. in this sure. game, in this game, how important our brains are and our confidence. Yeah. You got confidence. You think you good. Oh, my God. You, you think you're good. You are good. Oh, that's that's what yeah, I believe. Exactly. And I he was a big, he was a big help. Time, I used to say this to myself every time I walked, um, walked up to the plate the first time. First at bat of the game. This guy does not want to face me. I'd say that to myself. This guy wants no piece of me. And I remember when I was young, Brett, I would be on deck. 
and Sparky Lyle would be warming up. And I'd be in the dugout. I had no confidence in myself. I'd say, boy, I hope they don't bring him in to face me. Well, guess what? They did. And guess what? I made it out. All of a sudden, I don't know if it's because I started having some success late in ball games, but whoever they had in the bullpen, I would say, I hope they bring him in to face me. I hope. And then if it was Goose Gossage, I would look at him. I wouldn't stare at him. You know, I'd just look at him and I'd say, he wants no part of me. He wants no part of me. And all of a sudden, it made me relax a little bit. And I really think when you get in pressure situations, eighth, ninth inning, game on the line, good hitter, good pitcher, good closer, good setup guy, whoever it is, I think the majority of the time, the guy that wins that battle is the guy with the lower heartbeat, the guy that's able to breathe, the guy that doesn't feel the tension, the guy that's going to be most fluid in his approach. I really believe that. And I was able to slow the game down a little bit where I think relief pitchers, you know, they get amped up. I amp down. And basically I try it easier, not harder. Because the harder you try, the more tension you get, you know? So I just tried to slow everything down. And, man, it worked. I mean, I, you know, for the majority of my career, I think there wasn't a lot of guys on my team that didn't want me up at bat when the game was on the line. I think the majority of them did. And that was for a long period of time. That's such a great point. The heartbeat, because it, it takes yeah. you sometimes a while uh, to learn. Cause you know, as, as young players, we get in the box and man, it's the bases loaded and I've got to have a big at bat here and drive these runs in until you get to the point in your career where you can take a step back and say, wait a minute, the bases are loaded. All the pressure in the world's on this pitcher. He's right. in trouble. I'm not in trouble. He's got to come to me. So when we <laughs> finally right. gain the That's ability to, to slow. It. You're not in trouble. Yeah. The batter's not in trouble. The pitcher's in trouble. Unless, yeah. unless, you, unless you turn the tables and put too much pressure on yourself. And I talk right. to young players now about it because that's a, that's a big time for a young player. Bases loaded. Oh, I got to do good here. I got to get that big right. hit. At, at least I got to hit the sack fly. No, pressure's on that guy. He's in trouble. He's, the bases are loaded for a reason. He's not locked in. He's not finding the strike zone. And the day that I was able to kind of switch it and, and have that approach that, no, I'm not in trouble. He's in trouble. Now, all of a sudden, it's 1-0, not 0-1. Now he's in bigger mm-hmm. trouble. Yeah, well, Let the like game to come to golf? us. How would you like to be playing golf? Let's say you go back 40 years and you got Jack Nicholas and you're a rookie trying to win on tour and you play the last round with Jack. Who's going to win that match? Jack. And now let's fast forward 20, 25 years. You're, you've never won on tour. You're a good player, you know, never won on tour. And you're paired in the last round and you're tied with Tiger Woods. Who's going to win that match? Tiger. Tiger's going to win it every time. Don't you think? I think so. Every time. I, He's I put in his my comfort money there. zone and you're not. He's yeah. in his comfort zone and you're not in your comfort zone. He's going to go out there. It's a walk in the park for him and you're going to be trying. You're going to be so tense, so uptight. And you're going to be hoping, you're going to be hoping that, you know, he makes mistakes rather than you beat him. And I remember playing golf with Freddie Couples one time years and years and years ago. And I said, so when you've got a putt, 10-foot putt, and the guy's got a 12-foot putt uh, on the last hole to win a tournament, are you hoping he misses or makes it? 
Freddie said, "I want him to. I want him to make it because if I if, if I want if I hope he misses it and he makes it, I'm I've already lost the match. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, you know, so much of hitting, so much of baseball, so much of everything. I, I remember when I was young too, Brett. When I was not confident in my fielding ability, game on the line. You know, runners on second and third. We're up by one. Sometimes I would say, don't hit it to me. Sure enough, they'd hit it to you. Then what would you do? You'd boot it. I started tricking myself, saying, I want the ball. Every pitch, hit it to me, hit it to me, hit it to me. All of a sudden, you know, I put myself in a position to succeed. You know, Pedro Guerrero had the greatest line of all time. You remember that one, don't you? The one with Saxy? Yeah. Somebody hey, I'll said, let you, you tell the story. The base is loaded. Don't hit it to me and don't hit it to Sax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah. But I overcame it. I overcame it. And I think I th- once you over overcome your fears about the sport that you're playing, you'll be a better player. You can't be afraid to, uh, to mess up. You can't be afraid to make an error. You can't be afraid to strike out. Yeah, this these I, I love talking about this aspect of the game. It's so it's so you know, it's different level think, but it's so important in our game. And and yeah. you'd, you'd mentioned the goals with Charlie Lau. And I played with, you know, one of the great, in my opinion, one of the greatest right-hand hitters of, of my generation. Edgar. For Edgar. sure is Edgar. Yeah, by, and far, I remember, by far. Yeah, I remember coming back to the Mariners for my second stint in 2001. And, and I'd always, you know, respected. I, I held Edgar at the highest, especially being a fellow right-handed hitter. You know, we tend to sure. stick with our group. If I'm going to look at a great hitter, usually, you know, it's tough to really uh, identify with the lefty. So I'm going to look to the right. So Edgar was kind of the kind of the gold standard at the time. And I remember in spring training going up to him saying, Poppy, I, I'd had about nine years in the big leagues at that time. I'd hit 300 one time. And I said, Edgar, tell me your secret. I said, I want, I want to be better. I want to learn. Let's talk. And I started that relationship. And he said, Booney, every year I set goals. And I, I had never set a goal in my life, George. I, I never right. had. I go in, hair on fire, and I want to be the best player I can be. But I said, I, you sure. know, I want to learn from somebody that's won batting titles. And he said, set goals and set them lofty. He said, next year, you're going to hit 350. This year, you're going to hit 350. And I looked at him and I said, Edgar, I hit 320 one year, but I've never hit 350. That's kind of an unrealistic goal. And he said, if you think it's unrealistic, it is. Right. And I yeah. said, he goes, I'm going to give you that challenge. And, and he's still one of my best friends today. And we talk about that. Uh-huh. And I, I did. I set my goal that year. Was, all right, I'm going to hit 350. Even though part of me is going, well, I've never even come close to hit 350 before. Right. That year I hit 331. Wow. And he, and he wow. came to me at the end of the year. He goes, how did that goal work for you? I said, I didn't reach uh-huh. it. He goes, but will you take 331? You drove in 140. And I said, pretty good right. year. And he goes. Yeah, exactly. He goes, so, so set your goals lofty. And if you fall short. It's still an unbelievable year, and and that's the first time I started setting goals, and it really was another yeah. uh, learning learning lesson for me. Yeah, see, that's another thing I've never I've never thought of. So every time you talk to somebody in, at length about the game of baseball, you learn something, you know. And that's and that's what's great about the game. You know, I've never really talked to Edgar Martinez before, 
I knew he was a hell of a player. I'm just unfortunate he couldn't stay healthy. That's why he DH'd his whole career. But from what I understand, he was a very good third baseman, wasn't he? Yeah, he was good. When I came up as a kid, he was our third baseman in 92. Yeah, but 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 he couldn't stay healthy, right? Right. He's like right. Molitor. He's like Molitor. He just always got hurt doing stupid stuff. They say you're too valuable to be on the DL. Here's what we're going to do. You're young. Um, and you're too valuable to the team, we're going to make you the DH. I'm sure he wasn't happy about that, and DH is the hardest thing you can ever do in life because there's no defense. you got your mind on on your last at-bat every, every game. But he was able to mature and figure out how to do it and be really, really, really successful. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was one of the top right-hand hitters I've ever seen that yeah, I ever Jim played against. Jim Tomey talked about that, too, when, when he became a DH, and, and I was asking him how tough that is because I couldn't imagine doing it. You know, for me, yeah. playing second base was my solace, you know, because this sure. game, as you know, you know, even for the best of the best, hitting a baseball for 162 games is really, really hard. And there's going to be very few years where you don't hit, hit a speed bump. So there's going to be ups and downs, and I always thought, I, there's no excuse for me not to be a great defender every single day. So second base right. for me was kind of kind of like a okay when I'm not hitting, you're not going to get any I hits can either. So I, I can still help the team by playing good defense. Right, but being a DH and and Jim put it to me this way. Jim told me he said, Booney, all of a sudden I was pinch hitting four times a game. Yeah, and I had to learn how to do that, and I had to play games in my mind. Because I wasn't playing defense, I had to find a way. Uh, my defense was something else. And maybe my defense was, I've got to ride the bike and set goals on the bike until my next pinch hit appearance. And he said, and after sure. a while, I, I found my way. And, and it became okay and normal for me. And it wasn't a big deal. But early on, he said, yeah, it was definitely an adjustment. Mm-hmm. So, well, you so know, moving baseball is the hardest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing in the world in sports or in the world. You tell me an occupation that you can fail seven out of ten times and be considered a superstar. There, there is no occupation. Unless you're a telemarketer, because I hang up on those SOBs every time they call the house. And yeah, and it's not like football. You know, you can be if you're bigger, stronger, faster than everybody else on the field, you will be an NFL player. If you're bigger, stronger, mm-hmm. faster than everybody else and you can't hit a breaking ball, you will not get out of double A. <laughs> right. There's the difference. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a tough game. It's, tough it game. is tough. So, Charlie Lau, you start your you start your journey. 75, you hit 300 for the first time, hit 308. 1976, you win your first batting title. Yeah, that was, uh, that was an experience. I remember after the 75 season, how McCray – who was probably my favorite teammate of all time, um, came up to me at the end of the season and said, man, you're screwed now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're 21 years old and you just won or 20, you just turned 22 and you just, uh, you just hit over 300. They're going to expect it out of you the rest of your career. I said, how? I expect it every year. I'll expect it. And then the next year, um, Rod Carew had won seven betting championships in a row in the American League. And we go into the last game of the year, and we're playing the Twins. And I think I'm hitting 330. I think Hal McCray's 329. 
I think Carew's 329. And I think Lyman Bostock, you remember him? The late Lyman Bostock was hitting 328. And we're playing the Twins in Kansas City. Day game. And I remember that day I went three for four. Howe went two for four. Carew went two for four. And Bostock, I think, went one for four. So I ended up winning by point six five points or something. And uh, that was, you know, the first one is always sweet. Well, it must have really pissed off Rod Carew because he went out the next year and hit 388. So there was no competition. But then was fortunate enough to win another one in 80 and then one at 90. And won three of them in three different decades, which is, you know, they say the only player ever to do that in the history of the game. So when you do stuff like that, you're proud of yourself, especially the last one, Brett. Mainly because at the All-Star break, I was hitting like 260. And I was 37 years old. And everybody was saying, God, he's, he's done. You know, he can't play anymore. You know, he's been single his whole life. He hasn't been the most model athlete. Not afraid to go out and have fun at night. And doesn't take care of himself. And, you know, you start reading all that stuff in newspapers and hearing on the radio. You start believing it. Well, at the All-Star break, I didn't do anything. I just kind of hung out in Kansas City, played golf with some buddies. And it was like, did some soul searching. Like you said earlier, you did some soul searching. And I said, look, I'm going to prove all these guys wrong. And ended up hitting like 450 the second half of the season. I ended up winning a batting championship. So that catapulted me another two or three years after that. I played till 93, so three more seasons. But if I would have finished 250, I might not have fulfilled my contract. I might have retired early, not gotten 3,000 hits, wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. But that right there gave me the confidence that hey, I can still play with these guys, even though I'm older than some of my coaches and, and stuff like that. But it was uh, that first one was really sweet. It was really a, it was really a nice moment. 77, you hit 300 again. First time you hit uh, 20 homers, you hit 22. And then you go to 79, first time you drive in 100, you hit 329, 23, and 107. That's that's pretty good start to a career. But this is what yeah. we we get to 1980, and this is this still this still blows me away. I mean, it's still it's, it's it's still funny to me, George, in all my years and. <laughs> To look at the number 390, you hit 390. Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier my greatest year, I hit 331, and I felt like I hit 500. I couldn't imagine yeah, well, hitting 390. My best There's year only, before that was 335. So, yeah, but this, this, is, this, is ridicu- this is ridiculous. And the only, the only people that really, in the modern era, that you can mention in that group, there's George Brett, uh, Tony Gwynn, you mentioned him earlier, Rod Carew. I might think of a Wade Boggs and, and obviously the great Ted Williams. But other than that group, there's nobody that he can even talk about 390. Right. Well, that, I, went over three, I went over 400 with six weeks to go in the season. I think I went four for five against Toronto um, at a home game in Kansas City. And uh, we were jumping on a plane after the game, flying to Texas. Um, go to the ballpark the next day and everybody in the world wants to talk about hitting 400 and I'm laughing. I'm going, Hey, there's six weeks to go in the season. Crying out loud. I'm on a, I'm on a streak. Uh, the ball looks big coming in. You know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, 
And, and every day, it, it got so hectic that day that our traveling secretary or our, our media director, Dean Vogelar, had to fly in from Kansas City. And he talked to a guy named Bob Fischel, who was the media director for the New York Yankees in 1961, when Roger Maris had 61 home runs. And he said, what would you have done different with Roger? Because he was just open game to the media. And so what he suggested we do is we do a press conference before every game and after every game. So it kind of got me out of my routine. There were some times I'd come in after the game. Um, I'd have a quick beer. I'd go do my press conference. I'd come back and everybody was gone. You know, it kind of alienated me from my teammates a little bit. And um, so I would do these press conferences. So I wouldn't have to answer the same question every day. Well, at first it was, hey, time will tell. Yeah, I'm not, you know, what about Ted Williams and all this stuff, 400? I said, hey, we've got a long season. Don't, I'm not even thinking about that. Little did I know a month later, I'm still over 400. Now, after talking about this every day for a half hour before the game, a half hour after the game, all of a sudden it becomes important for me to do it. Well, before, I'm just going out there and playing baseball. We had a 20-game lead over the Texas Rangers. didn't really matter if the team won or lost, but it mattered how many hits I got. That's all anybody cared about. And then I went out and did the thing I shouldn't have done. I went out and tried to hit 400 the last two weeks. It was crazy. I'd go 0 for 1. I'd be 0 for 2. I'm going, oh, God, i got to get a hit. i got to get a hit. I, I never had that feeling before. I have to get a hit. I have to get a hit. And I just put too much pressure on myself. The average went down to 384 or something, 383. And that's when all the media went home and I didn't do the press conferences anymore. I hit 500 the last week to get it back up to 390. So at that time, I was 27 years old. I'm going, okay, that was a good learning experience. I'll be prepared for that next time it comes. Well, one year, I think at the All-Star break after that, I was hitting 365. And then I never sniffed it. Then it just gradually started going south. But it was, uh, I'll tell you what it was like. I got home for Thanksgiving. I flew from Kansas City to California, Manhattan Beach, where my parents were living. And I walked into the house. And the first thing my dad said to me was, you mean to tell me you couldn't have got five more goddamn hits? <laughs> that's what dads first do. Thing he said. That, that's, a, that's what dads do, right? <laughs> They're never satisfied. Never satisfied. During that streak, did you ever talk to Ted? Uh, no, but everybody said that Ted was pulling for me because he said every time somebody gets close, they start calling me. And um, uh, a couple of years after I retired, I got inducted into the Ted Williams Hall of Fame down in Ocala, Florida. Sat and talked to him for a long time. First time I'd really talked to him. First time I'd ever really met him. And, um, and I don't think he was a big fan of the way I hit because I know his theory and Charlie Lau's theory clashed quite a bit. But I think he was happy for me to experience what I did. And I think deep down inside, he didn't want me to hit 400. He wanted to be, to be remembered as the last guy to hit 400. It's just like, if, 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 if I was Ted Williams, I wouldn't want anybody to break my record with you. But he was very cordial and a nice guy and We'll fast forward a few years. The year I got inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1999, we have a, a members-only dinner. Then Tommy Lasorda took it upon himself to sit me right to seat me right next to Ted Williams at the dinner, and what a wonderful experience that was.
And for me to get my world's or my Hall of Fame ring, I remember uh, whoever was in charge of giving it out said, okay, Ted, what do you think? Is George Brett a Hall of Famer or not? And Ted thought for about five seconds. He said, ah, oh, what the hell? Let him in. <laughs> <laughs> Which really made me feel good. To get, to get Ted Williams okay is, uh, is something I think any baseball player would, would be proud of. Very cool. So that year, not only 390, but you, you hit 24, you drive in 118. You're the AL MVP. Um, obviously, you win the batting Well, the crazy title thing that about that year, I was stealing a base in, in Cleveland. And it was a high throw. And the throw kind of the uh, shortstop, uh, Jerry Dubinsky, kind of distracted me when he jumped up. And I slid in real late. I tore ligaments in my ankle. I missed six weeks of the season because of that. So I only played 117 games that year. And people were saying, God, is he going to qualify for the batting championship? Well, I ended up getting over 502 at that, so that was no problem. But, um, you know, when guys go on those on the DL now, they go to rehab assignments, and we didn't have that back then. You, you were ready to play, they just threw you in the game. And normally after sitting out six weeks, you're going to be a little rusty. I mean, I picked up right where I left off for some reason. I don't know how I did it. I just did it. And ended up driving in more runs than games played. I think I played 117 games and drove in 118 runs, which is, that's mind-boggling to me. That's the stat that I'm most proud of right there. Not only did I hit for an average, but I drove in a lot of important runs. And you mentioned the rehab shoot nowadays, George. Uh, if you're a double-A player and you get hurt, you go rehab at A-ball. I have no idea why you do that. Yeah, I, didn't even, like, I, didn't, I didn't even know that. I swear to God. I yeah, it's like, why, what are you doing? What, what are we protecting the double-A team? We, we've got to win that championship? <laughs> well, it depends, it depends what place you're in. Some of this, I know for the Royals, it's really important to win championships in the minor leagues. They, they want to win them, you know? Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if the Royals are doing that all the time. 1980, that was a big year. That was a big year for me. Uh that was the World Series. You played against Dad's Phillies. Oh, one yeah. Of the, one of, one of, that's, a, that's a baseball classic, that World Series. But I'm a 10-year-old kid living in Jersey. And, I, you know, I'm growing I'm a baseball rat. That's all I do. I love it. Sure. I love oh, the yeah. players. I remember seeing I love you the in Clearwater when throwing balls up behind the net before the game started. You remember that? I do. Yeah, 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 and it would roll kid, off right, kid, right before the game. The players are all in the dugout. And you're throwing balls up on the foul ball net and catching them as they come down. And I'm going, who the hell is that kid? Oh, that's Bob Boone's son. I'm going, huh. yeah, okay. And then look what happened to you. But but what a series that was. And I remember, you know, I'm a ten year old. I'm telling mom, she's trying to get me to go to bed, school tomorrow. I said, "What are you talking about? I'm watching every <laughs> inning of every game. Yeah. That classic Tug McGraw striking out Willie Wilson. Every time yeah. it comes on, it it just brings me back to that ten year old in those years and and uh, how awesome it was. Um, you know, it's play, it's replayed all the time. It's one of the it's one of those yeah. classics. Uh, well, it was a how was that, a how was that series, series for you? Bec- yeah, how was that series for you? Such an unbelievable for you personally, and then you get to the World Series and and grind it out. Ended up getting beat by the Phillies. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, we we lost some t- tough playoff uh, games to the Yankees over the years. Um, seventy six, seventy seven, seventy eight, 
lost in uh, the last inning twice in 76, 77, 78. We lost in and four games back then, uh, three games to one. 79, we didn't make the playoffs. 80, we make it. We sweep the Yankees. It was like winning the World Series. And I'm not saying this in any disrespect to the Phillies, but we had already won the World Series. They had an unbelievable series, and you remember that against Houston. I mean, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, I thought they were men- I-, I thought for sure they would be mentally drained after playing that series. And uh, sure enough, we go to Philadelphia to start the World Series, and we got a you know seven to four lead in the sixth inning or something. And something that we did not do, I think, but once all year, we blew a save. And they ended up beating us. And then the second game, we had a comfortable lead. They ended up beating us. And then we come back to Kansas City. We win game three, lose game four, win game five, go back there. And 70, uh, the last game, game six, is a real close game. And God, we had bases loaded, I think, one time. And guy hits a pop-up. And your dad runs over and bounces out of his glove. And Pete Rose is standing right there, and he catches it. You know, you remember that? I do. I've yeah, got uh, that, then, that pictures in this in that room where you and Matthew are high fiving <laughs> at home plate. That picture's there I too. Come, I gotta come check out that house. You gotta check so anyways, it out. Anyways, to make Ma- a long story Ma- short, we end up losing the World Series. A great learning experience for us as a team. You know, um, just amazing to be in that city. I never played in Philadelphia. Oh, I played in Philadelphia in the All Star game there in '76. But uh, it was just a great, great series. I enjoyed every minute of it, with the exception of coming up with the most famous case of hemorrhoids in the world and, and um, had to deal with that. But, um, but uh, no, it's just a good experience. Um, obviously, we're very, very disappointed at the time. Was not a big Mike Schmidt fan, not a Bob Boone fan, not a Greg Luzinski fan. But, um, but I think uh, over time, you, you kind of move on and you give, them a lot of, uh, you give them a lot of credit for beating us. And that's all you can do. We didn't play bad. They just played better. That's funny. You mentioned the hemorrhoids because I remember the story. And I'm 10 years old. I don't know what the hell hemorrhoids are. They're like, George Brett's got hemorrhoids. And I'm thinking, well, man up. Let's go. What is, what is this hemorrhoid uh-huh. stuff? <laughs> That's funny, though. You, I do I'll, remember I'll, that. I'll tell you a really funny story. It, it, was, it was some bad ones. And I uh, had operation after the second game. Flew home. They had a minor operation. Played game three. And, um, yeah, fast forward, my dad called me. He said, well, you pussy, you know, you can't play with hemorrhoids. Jesus. So about fast forward about 10 years, my dad started talking to one of my brothers. And he said, have you talked to dad? And I said, no, why? He said, he's in the hospital. I go, oh, my God, what's wrong? What's wrong with dad? Oh, he's got hemorrhoids. I said, oh, my God, give me the number of the hospital. So I called him up, and he answers the phone. And you can tell he's feeling uncomfortable as hell. And I go, you pussy, you can't even sit behind a desk with hemorrhoids. And he said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, George. (laughs) It's much worse than I thought. (laughs) He wanted me. He thought I was a pussy for not playing, and I have to run around and slide and do all that stuff. He couldn't sit behind a desk and do his work. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 